So it looks like it's time. We've passed just a minute or two. So just a couple of announcements. So Kathy has one from Carol. Would you like to begin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Carol Holter just wanted me to say first thanks to everybody that donated diapers. And second, she has a request for help. She says, now that we have diapers, we need to separate them by size. We'll open the boxes, write the size on the packages, and put all light sizes in large bags. So if anyone has time at the Joy Group this coming Wednesday, the ninth, uh, please join her, and she says maybe an hour next time. Okay, very good. Okay. Yeah, so they need help organizing diapers. Yeah, so if you're able to do that, that would be great. Then a couple other things. Um, the next two Fridays, the, uh, the ARC will need to have you get your children at 1015 uh, right on the nose. Uh, today, they, uh, one of the caregivers did not uh, show up, so that puts us in a little bit of a bind today. And then next Friday, they will need the hallway to uh, get all the Christmas sharing stuff that's coming in. So uh, they'll have to be out of the ark by 10.15. So by 10.15, these next two Fridays... Then the 17th, we will not meet because I figure that's the Friday before Christmas and things get pretty crazy. So we will not, we will not have class on December 17th. All right. So Zechariah chapter 3 today, some Old Testament themes. So in the Bible, there is something about naming naming is is very important and you see it in the greek you see it in the hebrew um today we're going to look at joshua the high priest and joshua in the greek would be jesus okay so joshua is like a jesus Figure, in a sense, okay. Um, in terms of names and and the Old Testament, there is a theme in Genesis. It starts off at the very beginning in Genesis one, verse twenty-eight, where God tells Adam, Adam and Eve. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is a, a heavy theme right off the bat in the Bible to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the idea is, God is the one that provides identity. So where I'm going with this today is what you're going to see in Zechariah chapter 3 is someone who does not look worthy of the task that he's going to be given. And so 
thematically in the Bible, there's a theme of reversal. And this theme of reversal is very tangible for the Christian life because what we so often find in Christianity is, and sometimes we, we feel this way too, who is it that is actually worthy to receive the blessings of the Lord? And lots of times Christians think, well, I don't do too bad. You know, I do okay. And what part of, part of the, the human psyche issue is we like to rank the commandments, don't we? You know, like I remember my grandma, who she never went to church, but, you know, she would always say, well, I haven't murdered anybody, <laughs> so I must be okay, you know. And I'm like, yeah, grandma, but, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, we rank, but God doesn't rank. And so what, what often happens is a, a person who maybe has one foot in the door of the church and one foot out might think, well, I don't do too bad. I'm okay. You know, I think God will accept me. But then sometimes if one reflects on his or her faults or sins, uh, they may conclude, well, I don't really know if I am in or not. And, you know, this all comes part of our struggle in, in our Western modern world is modernism. Modernism likes to put things in nice, neat little boxes. Modernism likes to define and categorize. And part of the problem with modernism then is it's sort of like black and white. So you're either in this camp or you're in that camp, okay? And a lot of Christians sort of operate that way, like I'm good, I'm holy, I don't do anything wrong, or I don't do the bad command, you know, I don't break the bad commandments, so I, I'm over here in the good camp, right? Um, or that person's a horrible human being, they're over in this camp over here, you know, they're going to hell, right? And this is how Christians sort of try to come to grips with who's in and who's out, and, you know, who's holy and who's not, who's going to heaven, who's not. But You've, I know you've heard of Athanasius, because Athanate, well, you know, Athanasian Creed. We get the the, Athan, the name Athanasian Creed from Athanasius, and Athanasius talked about the soul, and he said that the soul is never in static position, where it's just sitting still. And modernism tends to think like, well, he's either, you know, she's either sitting over here or she's sitting over there. But Athanasius is like, the soul is always in movement. So this would be the Christian as well as the person outside of the church. Where does the soul move to? And Athanasius said that the soul of a person will either move to the things of the flesh or the soul will move to the things of God. So Jesus provides the word and the sacraments in order to draw the person to the holy things, to draw the soul in the right direction, right? And it is in the word and the sacraments where 
you know, the promise is given and you receive what is promised. Um, the same thing can be discussed in terms of, you know, who's worthy to receive communion because, you know, who is it that's worthy to receive communion? Is it someone who doesn't commit the bad sins or is it the person that recognizes I really need Jesus, right? So, you know, two things, right? So the commandments in God's eyes are all the same. If you break one, you've, you've broken them all. And, and the, the big one is you, you go back and you break the first commandment. If you break any of the others, you break the first one. So God views things differently than human beings do okay so for example and you don't have to go to this if you're already at Zechariah chapter 3 but in you can jot this down in Gen, in Genesis chapter 4 as an example it says now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying Bless you. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's what it says in the English Standard Version. And then it says in verse 2, And again she bore his brother Abel. Period. Okay. Now, in Hebrew, it actually, it literally says this. Now Adam and Eve, now Adam knew Eve his wife, she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. So what did Adam, so Adam and Eve received the promise back in Genesis 3, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? So they hear that and what does Adam and Eve think? Well, the Savior's coming like next week, or right? That's what they thought. And so what do they name Cain? Cain means possession or to acquire. Okay? So I have gotten a man, begotten a man, Yahweh. They think that Cain is Yahweh, the Lord. And so they name him Cain for possession or to acquire. What do they name Abel? But what does Abel mean? Abel means worthless. Now that's a, that's a heck of a name to name a kid, right? There's worthless over there. <laughs> but the name means something. You know, in, in Hebrew, the name always means something, okay? And so Adam and Eve are looking at these two boys and they're, like, they're looking at Cain and they're like, well, there's the Savior. <laughs> so imagine their disappointment when Cain kills Abel. Then they're like, Whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? But see, Abel was, Abel was the one that the seed 
the promise was to come through, not Cain. And so Abel dies at the hands of the one they thought might have been the, the Messiah. And so now they have to rethink everything. Well, what happens then is in chapter 5, then Eve has another child. And it says in Genesis 5, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So the fact that it says he fathered a son in his own likeness was suddenly the realization that maybe the Messiah isn't coming just yet. And so he's, Seth is in Adam's image, which would be the fallen image. But the reason I bring this out is because there's this sense of reversal that's really important in Christian thinking. And this is important because, you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing to stop and slow down and pray and meditate, reflect on your life, and then confess. Confessing it can be a very painful experience because you're thinking about yourself and you're thinking specifically about your failings, your sins, your weaknesses, and you're, you're thinking about how and just how much you need Jesus. Well, that's a good thing, but it can be, it can be difficult. So we're going to take a look today at Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to look at just what happens with this, with this gentleman. So let's walk our way through it. And before we get started, just one thing to point out. They had come back from the captivity. And when, when God's people had been taken into captivity, the temple had been destroyed. And the temple was the place where God and people would meet and where God would bless the people. So they come back, but there's still no temple. So God will use this man, Joshua, the high priest, to oversee the building of the temple. So that's the context for this. So now let's, let's read it and, and kind of walk through it. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, so just right off the bat, there's a couple of things to make note from the first verse. The angel of the Lord pops up all over, and Martin Luther himself says that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was likely the pre-incarnate Jesus. So the second person of the Trinity. Okay, so 
the players in this account are the angel of the Lord or the second person of the Trinity, Joshua the high priest standing right there, and then Satan off to the side accusing. Now, who's he accusing? He's accusing Joshua. And, you know, this so often happens. You know, the devil is, you know, there's kind of like two sides, you know, two faces to the devil. Because sometimes the devil comes appearing as a friend and, you know, puts his arm around you and says, you know, it's okay. Everybody's weak. You know, everybody fails. So don't be too hard on yourself. And so you listen to that voice and you're like, okay, you dive into temptation or sin. And just as soon as you do that, then the devil turns and he says, see, that's why you're no good. You know, that's why you don't deserve any of the things that the Lord has to offer. Part of the the trouble with this is the devil knows Scripture better than we do. And, you know, even like the book of James, you know, he makes that remark that even the demons believe and tremble. So, you know, they know the things of God very well. And so what is the devil? But he is a perfectionist. And he demands perfection when he accuses us. So, so often, we then think about this in terms of our own lives we'll you know we'll think about god's word or we'll hear something from god's word and then we'll stop and think gee i don't really make the mark and we in terms of spirituality often tend to have a perfectionistic twist to us as well and so we think i'm not perfect i can't there's the commandments. I can't keep them perfectly. Therefore, I miss the mark. So am I a Christian or am I not? If we don't understand the gospel and the extent of the gospel and Christ's mercy, then we can lose ourselves in Satan's accusations and his perfectionistic push. So you have this accusation that's going on and Satan in Hebrew means to obstruct or oppose. And Revelation 12 verse 10 talks about Satan as the accuser of our brothers. So how does the Lord respond? So imagine the scene. Here's Joshua. Now, if you're Joshua... And you are coming before the Lord to receive a holy commission to oversee the building of the temple and the, build, and the temple brings God and people back together. How are you going to want to appear before the Lord? Are you going to come in your, in your Saturday sweats with the hole around the knee? 
Or how are you going to come before the Lord? You're going to come in your best, right? I mean, you're going you're gonna to try your, your very best to be presentable because it's a big deal. You're coming before Jesus. That used to be the way of going to church, too. Yeah, exactly. But some of it's fallen by the wayside. Yeah, it has. It has. So how does the Lord respond to the accusations? Because he could say, yeah, well, Joshua, you're right. You know, so it's like a courtroom. There's the Lord. There's Joshua. Here's Satan. And what Satan is basically doing is he's looking at the Lord. He knows God's word. And then he looks at Joshua and he says, are you serious? This is the person that you're going to have oversee the building of your temple? Come on. I could think of better people, but not this one. So how does the Lord respond? Does he sit back with arms folded and, and kind of give commentary or, you know, a agree with Satan and say, you're right, Joshua has some problems. Yeah, you know, I wondered about him too. <laughs> you know, you're really making me think here. No, look at what happens. In verse two, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So he's, he's brought back from the captivity. So he survives the captivity. He, re, he is returned. But here's the thing to remember in the midst of accusations about whether or not you match up is the Lord silences the accusations. So the work of Jesus is to silence the devil, to silence the judgment. So, you know, when you think about yourself coming before the Lord, coming to the Eucharist, going to confession and absolution, remember that that it is Christ's good pleasure to cover your sins and to bring you renewal. So in verse 3, this is where it gets really interesting and a little earthy. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So the earthy part is the Hebrew is pretty descriptive on the filth on the robe and the filth is feces. That's how Joshua comes before the Lord. So his Sunday best, that would be his Sunday best. How would you feel? How would you, I mean, what would you, do? I mean, think about like, I remember when I was not a Christian and I was well aware of my sins, 
the thought of ever going to a pastor and confessing my sins was completely out of the question. You know, I remember two doors down, I had a, uh, one of my best friends was an Irish Catholic. And he had to, when we were little, he had to go through confirmation. And I remember him telling me that it was Saturday, he had to go and confess to the priest. And I about died. I'm like, I would never do that, you know. I would die first, you know. And why is that? What, you know, I mean, I don't know how many of you have gone to individual confession and absolution with a pastor, but the first time you do it, it's really scary. It needn't be, but it is. Because you think like this, right? You've got the accuser in your ear. And, you know, the accuser is saying, are you going to tell him this? Well, if you don't, then it's not going to be any good. And so what do you do? Well, I'm not going. Right? But especially in the, you know, the Lutheran perspective, in terms of confession and absolution, Luther said the part that is emphasized is the absolution. Um, and that's important. Because you're going to hear Christ silence the accuser and announce forgiveness and mercy and renewal. And so, you know, what keeps us away from confession is the filth on us. But we go actually just to hear the gospel. And... You know, practically speaking, I remember the first time I went to individual confession and absolution, I was, I was freaked out completely. In retrospect, um, I would say, if you want to get into a good practice of individual confession and absolution, um, go and, and confess, I'm a sinner and I need... Christ's forgiveness and just hear the absolution, receive the absolution. Because the pastor-penitent relationship is just that, a relationship. And it's one where it's a back and forth and it becomes a part of one's life. It's not just a once and done thing. Okay, all right, all right. January 4th, I'm going to unload it all and then I'm never going back again. <laughs> it's not like that. It becomes a life of its own. It's a circular thing where you keep, you keep at it and you establish this relationship with your pastor and you, you learn through it the grace of Christ in the midst of all the stuff that's going on around you and within you in your past. And so just imagine Joshua. Be I mean, that's unloading it all right before his, the Lord's very eyes being clothed like that. So he's got on a filthy robe and a filthy turban but how does Jesus respond? He doesn't, he doesn't even say like, 
how'd you get that way? Or you shouldn't have done it. Or, you know, what's the matter with you? There's none of that. You see, that's the thing to remember with Jesus and with the practice of confession and absolution. I think the scariest thing is, what will you think of me when I unburden maybe one of those top sins? Yeah. A really bad one. What will happen to our relationship because you're a human being? Yeah, but see, the thing is, is, well, first of all, um, the pastor has heard almost everything. I'll speak for myself. I, I have heard almost everything. So, you know, nothing's going to rattle me. And the second thing is, you know, Luther and Augustine talk about it from the perspective of uh, the pastor has ears that don't remember. Okay, so, you know, when we hear confession, you know, like Augustine says, ask Jesus. It was Jesus who heard the confession. So you leave it at that. And so we don't, we don't sit and harbor those things. We, it's because it's all about hearing the absolution and receiving Christ's forgiveness and moving forward. Yes. That is a great point, and let me address that, but go ahead. Um, you want to go ahead and address that? And okay. I'll go after. Yeah, sure. So here it is, okay? So the person comes and says, Pastor, please hear my confession and pronounce forgiveness in order to fulfill God's will. And then the pastor says, Proceed. And then it starts off that the person says this. This is part of the confession. I, a poor sinner, plead guilty. And this is what Holly's talking about. I, a poor sinner, plead guilty before God of all sins. I have lived as if God did not matter and as if I mattered most. My Lord's name I have not honored as I should. My worship and prayers have faltered. I have not let his love have its way with me, and so my love for others has failed. There are those whom I have hurt and those whom I have failed to help. My thoughts and desires have been soiled with sin. And then comes, what troubles me particularly is that. And that's when you can say it. Now, one point that Holly made me think of is this. We're not looking for all the gory details either. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, you know, 
it's not a part of what we do to say, well, I need to hear every last little bit of it or it's not going to count. No. I mean, you don't see Jesus going, so tell me exactly how all this happened. (laughs) How did you get this way exactly? And I want to know every last detail or else. No, he doesn't do that at all. What happens is, is he just... He will reclothe him. And so it's so that's the thing to remember too. If ever you do come to one of us to confess your sins, we're not wanting to hear we don't need to hear all the details. You can just say generally and then you know because Christ died for all of that. Okay, so Martha. Um, so Confession for me, I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. converted to Lutheran when Dave and I got married 25 years ago. Um, so in the Catholic Church, you go in the box, you confess your sins, you get your penance, yep. you do your prayers, yep. and you're done. And I'm not saying one's bad, one's good. Right. The Lutheran confession for me has been far more meaningful. I've done it both ways. You know, when I started, I did it, the first time I did it, I did it the Catholic way, where you tell your things. Um, and then sometimes if I just didn't know what to say, I thought, well, I'm just going to do as Holly, you know, yeah. you know, through the book. But the, the bonus in the Lutheran private confession for me is that you confess these sins and then you know, the pastor may ask, do you want to, you know, let's sit and talk about that. And not not in a not in a finger-wagging way, yeah. but in a way of comfort and forgiveness and kind of checking in. Yeah. Okay, you you've unburdened yourself with this. You know, it's all forgiven. Is there any tidying up or how you doing? Right. I'm not quite that casual. Yeah. So in every scenario, whether I have, have you know, confessed specific sins yep. or done it in a more general way, first of all, I've done it many times. Every time I go in, I'm nervous. Yep. You know, of course. Every time I walk out, I am like, this is fabulous. Yeah. I'm unburdened. It is the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, but what a contrast with what I grew up with. Yeah. And, and the gift that I've been given. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who's maybe, you know, on the fence, um, you know, there are ways, you know, as Holly suggested, to just kind of dip your toe in and see how it works for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, for, for Lutherans, it's a... Uh, because of our pastoral emphasis, maybe, um, it, it has a, a much more relational sort of thing, like you say. Uh, so it's a very valuable thing. And um, it's, it's simply meant for comfort because so often we carry those, those deeper things with us and, you know, they never leave. And, and those are the... Those are the things the devil is always using to accuse us. 
So, you know, you've always got this, this one sin or a couple things festering. And, you know, you're never quite at peace. And so this is an opportunity to have happen what we see here in Zechariah chapter 3. And so, yeah. the restoration of the relationship and you know that is so important and it happens here in this text too so thanks for bringing that part up so in verse 4 it says and the angel said to those who are standing before him remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said behold I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments So his filthy garment represents his iniquity. It's a re-clothing. And so, you know, this happens in baptism, of course. We become new and we put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. Confession and absolution, as Luther's catechism points out, is a daily rising and dying in baptism, right? So then we move on and verse five, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So Zechariah gets caught up in all this and says, put a a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. So here's kind of what Lindsay was talking about a little bit. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So, you know, I've talked before as we've gotten together to study about the road, that language of road and way and feet and path and a light for the path. Well, that is in this text, particularly where it says, if you will walk in my ways. What it's literally saying is, if you will walk on my road. So part of the being cleansed and renewal is also then, as Lindsay said, restoration renewal of the relationship and it's ordered by the teachings of the Lord and this is actually very comforting right like you hear the forgiveness you're reclothed and then Jesus says and here's my word and my teaching 
Now walk with me and let's learn together. And so it is the full package. It finishes everything in just the right way because you exchange the troubled words and the accusations for forgiveness and mercy and teaching that brings holiness. And when he says this, he says, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So who would be those standing there? Well, I didn't mention this, but not only was it Joshua and the angel of the Lord and Satan, but the whole heavenly host of angels was standing around too. And so the idea is, now you will, I will give you access to walk among those standing here with the angels and archangels. Heaven's cohorts, okay? And then in verse 8, he says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a, a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Now, who's the servant, the branch? Yeah, it'll be Jesus. Incarnate, God incarnate. Okay. And who is it? He says, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. The men who are a sign are all the prophets who came before. So the word of God. They're all a sign. And this gets back to the content of the scriptures. Everything's about Jesus. Everything in the scriptures ultimately are about Jesus. And they lead us to Christ. And then I will bring my servant. The branch is kind of an Advent Christmas theme. And then in verse 9, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So what's that? It's this event, right? I will remove, I will, how does it say that? I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So everything that's happening in this text carries with it the Advent and Christmas theme of the coming of the branch, the day that the iniquity of the land is completely removed, and it all is being drawn around in a picture of Joshua. So Joshua is you and me. Yeah. Uh, can you explain the stone with seven eyes? The, yeah, the stone with the seven eyes. This. The stone with the seven eyes. So seven is completeness, right? Because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And so it symbolizes, A, the restored temple in Joshua's time. But it is also, the seven eyes reflect God's perfect watchful care. Jesus becomes the living stone in in 1 Peter 2:4 Jesus is the living stone. 
And so the seventh day in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, the seventh day is referred to as rest, but it's interpreted as Jesus. Jesus is our rest. So the sense of seven and the seven eyes and the stone is entering that seventh day Sabbath rest of resting in the care of Christ, his cross, his resurrection. And it's something that never stops watching over us. Yes, Holly. Um, Totally. So that's like the temple language, right? The tearing of the curtain. Now you can come in. And um, see, I had a note about that. Where was it? The right of access. So the, there is an old, the Old Testament written in Greek uh, called the Septuagint. And the word for uh, right of access in Greek means reversal of fortune. And so here is this sense of reversal, which takes us back to Genesis and Cain and Abel. And there's all this reversal that's like always rolling around in the Bible, like even down to the arrest of Jesus and his trial and who Pontius Pilate standing there and there's Jesus on one side and there's who's on the other side. He's going to give one, let one go free. Who is the one on the other side? Barabbas. And what does Barabbas mean? Son of the father. So note this, this notion of reversal. So Barabbas means son of the father, but he's an imposter. Jesus is the true son of the father. They want to let the imposter go and kill the true. Yeah. Is, is uh, like the scapegoat? He is like the scapegoat, exactly. He's the one that is sent out into the, yeah, exactly. It, that's, that's, there it is. Yeah, I'd never really thought about that, but now it's all together. <laughs> so this is, you know, think about your own, your own life of faith as you rest in the grace of Jesus. Yes, sometimes the Christian feels like Joshua. You know, you, you, know, you know the gospel, You've been told you're forgiven, but you sit and the devil accuses you and says, look at your clothing. But that's when you say, I'm baptized. I have on the, the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers me. And that's the life you live. So 
going to the Eucharist, going to confession and absolution, listening to the word of God. It's who we are. And Christ has given these sacramental gifts in order to continually bathe us and cleanse us and comfort us and remind us that we are in fact new and that we are the Joshua that has on the clean, white, pure robe because of Christ's love for us. All right, so let's go ahead and close uh, with prayer and then benediction. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come, that by your protection we may be rescued from the threatening perils of our sins and saved by your mighty deliverance. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. All right. Have a blessed day. Thank you.